Thanks, Sam, for reading those three passages. So we continue in the epistle of James to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world around Israel. Those refugees, they wanted to be happy. We all want to be happy, don't we? Society sees happiness as the goal of life. Of course, everyone's got their own idea of what happiness would look like. What is it for you? Not having to work? Close, loving family. Sounds better. Lots of money. Win lotto. Happiness. Good health. Our older brothers and sisters would put their hand up for that one. And then there are those of us who say, golfing for life. Fishing for life. Or the ladies might say, never having to do the washing or ironing again. Ah, heaven on earth. Never having to prepare meals again. And the more philosophical among us would say, oh, peaceful world. No wars in Ukraine or Sudan. A war without famine. That would be happiness for many millions. A world without disease. Can you think of that? A world without wars. And I could go on for another 15 minutes, but there's more of the sermon to uh, get through. Hmm. Well, God has a totally different view of what happiness for the human heart looks like. And this is the subject presented this morning in our text, James chapter 1, verse 12. We're making progress through this book. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's our text this morning. It's only one verse, but it's a beatitude. Did you notice? It's a beatitude. And beatitudes are rare in Scripture. They're like gems popping up every now and then. The book of Revelation has seven. So time should be spent considering them seriously and carefully and even memorizing them for the benefit of our lives. James continues to guide the 12 tribes scattered among the nations in developing a Christian mind to all the problems of life. That is, he wants them to have a biblical world and life view about true happiness. At the first reading of the passage, we can see that the Beatitude recapitulates, sums up the teachings of verses 2 to 4, namely that life is one of hardships and trials that are intended by God to drive us to him in faith so that we can endure them as tests of faith. With the one application of this as to how Christians should deal with poverty and wealth. And did you notice those two words go together in the Revelation 2 passage? 
So this is James's basic position, that the Christian moves forward in life by means of enduring trials of faith, with the result of maturity and completeness in Christ. Now note, it's a lifelong process. Are we there yet? No, we're not. Mary is, though. Grammatically, the Beatitude can also be viewed as an introduction to the same truth, but from a new and different perspective. And that's why we read the following verses dealing with, did you notice it? Temptation. Another one of those trials that we all face day by day. But now let's consider in greater detail the text of this beautiful beatitude. It falls naturally into three parts. The beatitude itself, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. The divine consequence of persevering under trials, that is the receiving the crown of life. And thirdly, the ultimate reason for perseverance. We love God. So firstly, the beatitude, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Now, if you're following it with your Bible there, you may notice I've read a different translation. In the Greek, it's, it literally is, blessed is the man. But you see, we're living in a kind of a equality, a sexual equality generation where men and women are to be quite equaled, equaled, and uh, so the scripture uses just the word man, general word for those days, but now it's men and women, brothers and sisters, but it's blessed is the man, now I want you to remember that phrase, it comes up later, who perseveres under trial. Beatitudes immediately remind us of Jesus' sermon on the mount, didn't it? Hope so with its powerful introduction of eight Beatitudes, bang, 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 that describe the conduct and the quality of life of the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's us. In other words, describing how a Christian is to perceive life in this world, how to live it with a Christian world and life view. And we've already seen how well, James heeded the words of his stepbrother Jesus in verse 5, remember, where he directs us to ask for the wisdom that we lack. Ask and you'll receive just what Jesus said. And so here we have another example. James uses a beatitude with this, in the same context with the same purpose of Jesus' teaching on the mount. This is wisdom literature, life literature. Now, the first word, as you've noted, is blessed. And we should not quickly run over that word. It's a word used in the New Testament 50 times, I'm told. Hence, an important word. It's a step higher than just happiness, though this is the foundational meaning. It is higher than happiness because it is the happiness granted by God. 
and is the heartfelt emotion that comes from knowing that my Creator loves me and has brought me into a personal relationship with Himself through the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. And, don't forget, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Blessedness far exceeds the happiness that the world of fame and fortune offers. This is the happiness that produces pure joy. Ah, pure joy, my brothers and sisters. In afflictions and hardships of life, the happiness in winning the lottery doesn't match it at all. It is a spiritual happiness because it comes from the hand of our Heavenly Father. It is a token of His love for us, and it is not earned. It is a gift. Remember the words of verse 5, where God is described as a giving God, giving generously wisdom to those who ask. One who is eager to bless his children with good gifts, as if he's got nothing else to do. That's the sense of that word, giving. So this blessedness also is a source of enrichment of the knowledge of God, part of the gift needed to travel the road of faith to maturity in Christ. And it strongly endorses the truth that God is very, very much involved in the business of the trials of faith. In your trials and afflictions, hardships of life, your anxieties, God is very much involved. He requires you to endure them, to grow in faith. So, who are the blessed ones? Those who find complete happiness in God and thus have the ability and the wherewithal to persevere under trial. But did you notice the opening words of the Beatitude? Blessed is the man. Any clues? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. He doesn't walk in the way of the ungodly. Again, we see James's knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures and his leaning on them for his own use here. We do that in our own prayers too, and even our own conversations. Yes, it's a neat way of summing up the content of this epistle so far. It sums up verses 1 to 11 perfectly, enduring the trials of life. Blessed is that man and woman. No, we 21st century Christians can't escape James's message. The trials of life are the way that God tests our faith, strengthening it, enlarging it, enriching it, inclining us to seek the Lord and to know him and his sovereign power better, more and more knowing the depth of his love that guides us through this life to our real home. 
Life's hardships become trials that teach us that earth is not our home. We are traveling through this world to our eternal home, the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. Indeed, we are aliens on this earth. Be careful. Thus, our lifestyle in all its facets should reflect this view of time and eternity, shouldn't it? And here is the challenge for us this morning. Firstly, we need to acknowledge before the Lord that we still have an imperfect life, an imperfect view of eternal life. Our hearts and our lifestyles do not always reflect the blessedness of the man who endures the trials of life with pure joy. Oh, James, why did you put that word there? We think that we have a right to happiness. When things go wrong, we don't like it. And we tell the Lord about it. We do have to grow, you know. Secondly, we need to examine our lives. Yes, you and I, we need to examine our lives and its many facets, praying that the Lord will convict us of areas of our lives that do not reflect the pilgrim life. The pilgrim life. We're nomadic. We're aliens on our way to heaven. This is not our home. And yet we try very much to make it our home, don't we? Another question to ask is, in what or in whom do I find my true happiness and blessedness? Is it really God? Or is the fishing in gulf more, give me more happiness? When are you most happy? Consider that question in a quiet moment. You see, we sing these great hymns in church. Jesus, priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure. But we know in the depth of our hearts that there are parts of our lives that we keep him out of. We sing, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. But we know jolly well, it's not all for Jesus in the lives that we live. And that's what has to be fixed, congregation. And so, our gracious Heavenly Father tests our faith with hardships in order to bring us into a deeper relationship with Him, teaching us to prepare ourselves for heaven, the eternal glory waiting for us there. Hence, the message from James is, Persevere under trial congregations, under hardships, under anxieties. Go to him, your almighty God. This is the way to complete happiness in this life and a good preparation for eternal life. Now, after the blessing and description of the one who is blessed, James adds a magnificent promise. It is magnificent, and it is an inevitable consequence of enduring trials. The one who endures trials will receive the crown of life. Wow. 
royalty at last. It's a well-known fact from James's day to ours that athletes must first finish the race. Nowadays, you have to finish first, second, or third before receiving the award. Here, the crown of life. Notice that James does not, he says, the crown of life. He doesn't say a crown of life. It's important. There's only one such crown of life for all who persevere under trials. You see the problem there? We've got one crown to share amongst us all. Who's going to get it today? Now, there may be some here this morning who have read the text too quickly. The question I raise is, can we all expect to be wearing crowns in heaven? You ever thought of that question? It seems to have been a common phrase among the early Christians, as we find it again in the letter to the church of Smyrna, which we read, Revelation 2.10. There, Jesus writes to the church and says, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Even to the point of death. It's a good word for our brothers and sisters in lands which are persecuting Christians and killing them. Again, notice it is mentioned in the context of persecution and afflictions, hardships. And other crowns are also mentioned in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, for example, Paul reminds the church of athletes who train faithfully in order to finish the race and win the prize. A crown. And here also it is found in the context of perseverance in the race unto the end. You won't win the crown unless you finish the race. Endure. Persevere. And then Paul applies the example to the Christian life, where one is called to struggle, to have endurance, to have suffering, until we finish the race of life and gain a crown that will last forever. Now, some of us run the race of life. Some of us walk it slowly. And some of us even struggle and crawl on our hands and knees. But you get to the end. When you reach the finishing line, the crown of life is there for you. So persevere to the end. Endure the trials of life with pure joy. I didn't say that. James did, and not James Hapton. Paul also speaks of a crown of righteousness. And Peter, well, he speaks of a crown of glory. You see, there's quite a few crowns in Scripture. And that makes it three crowns if you've been counting. So does it mean then that we will have three crowns balancing on our head? Oh boy. It is interesting that our humanness puts the emphasis always on the crown. It's possibly a result of too many sporting events in our society, but also the possible result of our self-centered nature, always seeking a reward for our achievements and the secret desire in our hearts to be royalty, 
princes and princesses, kings and queens. Rather, we are to understand these crowns are mere symbols of the last word in the phrase. The crown of life, the emphasis is on life. The crown of righteousness, the emphasis is on righteousness. The crown of glory, emphasis is on glory. Forget about the crowns, congregation. And then we realize that these expressions are symbols or metaphors of eternal life. The life of perfect righteousness and the eternal glory that awaits the Christian who perseveres under trial. You should remember that phrase. And completes the arduous journey of life. The crowns will not be in our on our heads, congregation. The crowns will be in our hearts. Emblems of the highest joy and happiness of glory and immortality. Eternal life, congregation, in the presence of God. Now let's turn to the concept of how we obtain this crown of life. James says, we receive it, which means that it is given to us. And by whom? God himself. In other words, we don't earn it. It is the gift of eternal life, the gift of righteousness, and the gift of glory from God. Received by those who believed in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, who was sent from heaven to this earth to offer himself a complete atonement for all our sins. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And lastly, we note that this gift of eternal life, the crown of life, has God's guarantee. It has been promised by God. God's pronouncement of a blessing is concluded with an ironclad guarantee of his promise. And boy, that's a great comfort to the scattered saints of the first and second century as they endure the trials of persecution, suffering and death for Jesus. And for those of us today who are bearing heavy burdens of one kind or another. It is this blessing with its promise that is to carry you and me through our personal trials of life along the journey, be it persecution, health, financial, personal relationships, etc. I put my faith in the word of the living God that he has saved me from all my sins so I can rely on him through my earthly journey with confidence and joy, pure joy, because he has said so. 
He has promised. James is not yet finished. There is a third part of the Beatitude. He adds a new thought to the subject of persevering in trials. He gives us the ultimate reason why a believer should actually desire and want to persevere in and through the trials of life instead of giving up. And these trials can be very severe. Cancers are no joke, nor are suicides, murders, fatal accidents, disabilities, divorces, droughts for farmers, bankruptcies, homelessness, just to name a few. Why is it that Christians can display faith, peace, perseverance, and even joy in the adversities of life? James says it's because they love God. The crown is promised to those who love him. Do you actually know that you love God? Have you said to him, I love you, Lord? Now, that's a simple answer, isn't it? Yet the paradox still remains, as the Christian believes that life's trials are given by God to strengthen him. I love the God who presents me with the trials in my life. That's it in a nutshell. And that's a paradox. It doesn't fit together, humanly speaking, does it? To the non-Christian, this is nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's illogical. Why would you love the one who afflicts you with pain and discomfort? Peace, health, and happiness is what I want from God. Yet the paradox beautifully answers the question. I understand that God gives me trials because he loves me and wants the very best for me in this life and the next. The sovereign God actually loves me, you. That's amazing, isn't it? Who are you? Who am I? The eternal, infinite God should love me. Not because of any good thing in me, for there are no good things in me deserving of his love, but because of his freely bestowed love and grace poured out in abundance, lavished on us, says John, in his son, Jesus. I love him because he first loved me. And in my response of love to his love, I see myself as a debtor. I am overwhelmed by such divine love. The only natural way of response for me is to love him back. And that love is demonstrated in the way that I endure and persevere in the trials he sends me. 
Remember that fellow called Paul? He was first of all Saul the persecutor, killing Christians as fast as he could. But God grabbed him by the collar, converted him, and he became Paul the apostle, who had to work very hard or serve the Lord very hard to make up for all those mistakes. He had a disability, a trial of some kind that hindered his service to Jesus. He wanted to serve the Lord, preach his gospel throughout the whole world. He describes this trial as a thorn in the flesh. Now, if you've ever had a thorn in the flesh, you know it hurts. Definitely painful. So he prayed, Lord, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. Once, twice, no answers, three times. And to the third request, he had an answer from God. It's a good answer for us too. My grace is sufficient for you. And he could have gone on to say, sufficient for you in all your trials of life. Grace. The, the remembrance of God's undeserved favor upon you. His love, his grace, his mercy. In other words, an understanding of God's amazing grace is more than adequate to enable me to persevere and endure the trials of life. And that's what he, James wants his congregation to know. Well, such is the beatitude that for enduring life's curved balls. It is a magnificent pronouncement of blessing from God for all his children as they journey through life. Remember that James teaches that earthly life is a series of trials of one kind or another, small or great, earlier or later in life, but all are tests of our faith, aimed at bringing us into a closer relationship with our Creator who has become our Redeemer. We often ponder the problem of pain and suffering, don't we? Especially if you've got it arthritis, cancers, probing the question, why? Why does God do this to me? It hurts. Yet few of us pause in our lives to ponder the more extraordinary question, why does God give me so much happiness? As if we deserve it, which we don't. Perhaps we think it's our right that this life should be all happiness for us. We can sin, we break God's laws, but he should make us happy. But have you noted that often the happy moments of life, or the easy days of life, often blunts our love for God, make us forget him? So James wants us to see that our motivating purpose every day is to reveal love for our Savior to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would that I could more and more obey his royal law of love. Such love will encourage us to persevere until we arrive at life's end, as Mary did, to receive the crown of life. 
eternal life in the presence of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your beatitudes that you give us in Scripture, your words of blessing, your promises of blessing upon your people. We confess, Lord, that we don't deserve them. We're like the tax collector in the temple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But we stand amazed at your divine love, unimaginable, incomparable, that is bestowed upon sinners who repent and believe in Jesus. Oh, we give you glory, Lord. We give you praise and honor. We want to exalt your name in our lives. That's not just not with our lips only. So, Lord, as we go from this place today, may we go forth with these assurances, your promises of your word to endure and persevere through the journey of life that you give to each of us and bring glory to your name, the glory to your son, Jesus Christ, because it is in his name that we ask it. Amen.